I, well, I saw it. Exclusion, the cold face of exclusion. You know, there's just such low expectations of people with disability in society and it, and it penetrates all aspects of their lives. And it's just an attitude shift. I saw that. I saw that, you know, people could live their full potential if other people's attitudes just changed. Hi there. I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee Potters, my guest today is the incredibly talented and internationally recognised Australian writer and director Genevieve Clay-Smith. Jen burst onto the creative scene with her first ever short film as a young 20-something taking out the top gong at Tropfest, the world's largest short film festival. Since then, she's gone on to become one of the world's leading advocates and pioneers of inclusive filmmaking, helping to ensure the industry is accessible for all. I'm really keen to tap into her entrepreneurial journey, to understand how she unlocks and harnesses her creativity, and what it is that she's learnt on the journey she's been on about how to build diverse and inclusive cultures. I just want to apologise for the fact that the sound quality of this interview isn't what I would have hoped. We endeavour every week to make it as good as it can get, but unfortunately the nature of doing live interviews means occasionally stuff gets picked up in the background that we wish wouldn't. That being said, uh, Jen's interview and inspiration is so worth it that I really hope you'll give this the listening it deserves. Here's Jen. Jen Clay-Smith, I can't thank you enough for making the time to join me on Coffee Pods. I've been so excited for this conversation. You know I'm a massive fangirl of yours. I've been a huge admirer and, and cheerleader of everything that you've been up to for a number of years now. And I find your incredible journey in the creative realm to be inspiring and encouraging. And I'm grateful for it because I think we desperately need a change in the storytellers and the stories that we're featuring across this country and across the world. I want to know where it all started, though. You know, you mentioned to me before, I didn't grow up wanting to be a CEO. You have found yourself as one. <laughs> but what did little Jen want to do? Like, if we went back to you as a kid, was it, was it treading the boards? Was it, was it <laughs> film? Was it, well, like, where did it start? Well, little Genevieve wanted to be an actress. Okay. So, a lot of amateur theatre. Actually, amateur theatre took up my entire childhood and teenage years. I was part of a um, kids' theatre group called Young People's Theatre, yep. and I played a range of different roles, from a bunny rabbit through to a gumnut <laughs> baby in a rendition of Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie, the musical, through to Pride and Prejudice, through the... Well, you, that, that's range, can I just say? <laughs> I have to say, there's a pretty funny one. So, because there's so many kids that are part of these classes, um, we did Hansel and Gretel once, but, you know, you don't want to say no to all the kids that audition, so they would have, like, which one, which two, which three, <laughs> through to seven. There was, like, actually seven apprentice witches to the main witch in Hansel and Gretel, so all these It's kids. like Love Actually, where there's multiple lobsters at the birth of Jesus. <laughs> exactly. You don't want any kids to miss out, and I got to be witch seven, little Mo. Ooh. So. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, I mean, one of the things I find, you describe yourself as a, a storyteller, amongst other things. Mm. Have, have you always been a storyteller? I definitely do think it started with uh, telling stories in theatre. Yeah. Um, but I also loved reading as a kid as well, and also would write a lot. So okay. I had um, a, a bunch of exercise books that I filled up with an, ent an entire fantasy novel, 
and I can still remember all the characters' names and the journey that they went on and the universes that they went through, and I would often isolate myself at lunchtime to focus on doing writing the story. So wow. I've always wanted to tell stories and have just played different roles in, in the process of doing that over the years. And where does that creativity come from, do you think? What inspired you so young? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, my mother was creative and I think she kind of saw early on that I was a bit, as a child, quite extroverted, though I think I've turned into an introvert as an adult. <laughs> That's interesting. I know. I don't yeah. know what happened there. But, um, you know, I, I was, you know, always trying to perform and, you know, did lounge room, you know, shows and all this kind of thing. And So she saw that and, you know, put me into the the young people theatre group but then even at school like I'd you know try and get into the talent quest and, yeah you know I was always trying to you know take people on a journey <laughs> I love that that was evident so young when you think about um, the power of stories if we were to think about your childhood or your kind of formative early life what's the story that's had I guess a really significant impact on you be it one you're a part of or one that someone shared with you mm, I think that you know, when you're growing up and you're listening to lots of different stories, reading stories, you really are soaking in the messages. And I think that one of the stories that really impacted me as a young kid was Matilda. Yeah, right. And just the fact that she felt kind of othered, but also had this gift that she needed to unlock. I really kind of identified with that. I really loved that story. And I, as a kid, you know, I felt quite othered because I didn't grow up in a conventional family. Um, you know, I was raised by a single mom in a low socioeconomic area. And, um, you know, kids would... Kids are quite mean and very cruel. And so, you know, they actually were not very kind about the fact that I had a single mom and would um, be would say some horrible things around my family situation. I felt very isolated and, um, you know, I think I kind of really grasped Matilda mm. as, a, as a kid who just didn't feel like she quite fitted in but then had something on the inside to unlock and I actually really did feel like as a kid that there was something in me that could be unlocked um, but it just took you know it took the journey to unlock it so I can imagine like it's hard I mean all of us have been subjected to kind of those sorts of nasty things being said in the playground but I find it amazing to to, to be in that sort of environment and yet have this confidence to put yourself out there on stage in these talent quests in plays, was that part of how you built your confidence or was that part of your coping mechanism for some of what went on in the schoolyard? Yeah, I do think so. I also think that because I had uh, an early flair for it, it was the only thing I thought I could do. Yeah, right. So I actually um, didn't excel at mathematics, English, history, any any subjects really. And I felt like, um, as a child, the only thing I could do was perform. And I thought that if I was going to make something of my life, then I better really give this a good shot because this seems like the only thing I'm, I'm good at. You know, art, um, these creative things, of being a performer. So I kind of, I think, at that age, threw all my eggs in those baskets mm. because I literally just didn't think I would amount to anything else. I can't believe that was ever a consideration because one of the things that struck me since the moment I met you is um, this clear conviction in you that your life was going to be about something, mm -hmm. that it's going to matter. Was that something you feel like you were almost born with or is that something that has evolved with time as you've started to ask yourself big questions about what am I here to do and, and what do I want to devote time, effort and energy to? 
I think it's something that has evolved over time because I think as an adult I have become more aware of how the work I'm in can have really significant social impact yep. and um, and be very influential in how people think about the world. But growing up as a kid and a teenager, um, I had I had a sense of destiny. Like I, I had a sense that I could do something mm. with my life. But at that point, it was quite shallow. I think you know, becoming a famous actor was a means of <laughs> earning money, having a stable life, and not struggling. Um, and so it was a, it was a shallow sense of destiny. But then I think as I you know grew and evolved as an adult and um, aligned my creative work with social justice and a desire for it to be used for a purpose that could impact other people, I found that sense of, of you know, a significant purpose in that it could make a change. It wasn't shallow anymore, mm. if that makes sense. Totally. And you said, you know, you were kind of on this acting trajectory and then there was this moment where you sort of thought about how do I fuse this, this creative capacity I've got with this... Uh, the social purpose piece. Was there a moment that catalyzed that? Yeah, it did. So after I finished high school, um, there was a moment in my, you know, teenage years where, um, you know, I was really not in a good place. I actually, uh, the, the, the bullying, the schoolyard bullying got to a very, very bad place and I ended up uh, becoming quite depressed and um, felt very hopeless. And so... Um, Part of helping me with that was my mum and my grandmother found community in a Baptist church and mm -hmm. I found myself suddenly in a, in a church community. And I, I found that these people, you know, they believed I could do more with my life. You know, there was kind of people around me saying different things to what I was hearing in, you know, other environments mm. in my life. And, um, and that from that moment, I kind of found confidence and ended up, you know, I, I started really putting more effort into school and, um, you know, I, I found myself actually excelling at school probably around the year 11 mark. So year 11 and 12, I, I excelled in high school. And I think it was, I just look back and I kind of see a correlation between my confidence and, mm. and that to being in, in community. Um, and so I finished high school with a very high UAI, which was something that I never thought would occur. And I believe it's called ATAR now, mm -hmm. my final year. So you're leaving like score. Yep, okay. Very high. And this is from a kid who literally thought she would never even finish year 12. Yeah, wow. At all, I thought I would definitely leave at year 10 and get a trade. Like I did not think I would did be able to that. finish um, finish year 12. So um, having having got that, that score, I wanted to do something with it, and I decided I'd go to the University of Technology and um, and study filmmaking. I thought I'd done all these years as an actor, time to get on the other side now, and, and maybe that will help me to be an actor. Uh, so still long. acting at that point? And still acting, yeah, yeah. absolutely, okay. but I thought I want to use my UAI, I don't mm -hmm. want that to, to get, go to waste. Go to waste. I was very proud of that, Damn and right. I thought I could, um, could go behind the scenes and um, and that would help me out. So I, uh, I I studied media arts production at UTS, and my first filmmaking job uh, was for Down Syndrome New South Wales. So I just responded to a call out. They were looking for a director to document a program that they were working on uh, with 
six people with Down syndrome was a, doc, a project that was designed to help them achieve life goals. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was hired to document them and their families over 18 months as wow. they were going through this process of achieving life goals. And that's where everything changed for me. That's where I saw how, um, I, well, I saw exclusion, the cold face of exclusion for people with disabilities. My eyes became very open to, and I became awake to how um, we put up these barriers to inclusion in society. And, you know, we, we prevent people from reaching their full potential because we have low expectations of them. We don't give them a job because we assume they're not going to be able to do it. We don't include them in social opportunities or the housing market because we just don't think people are capable of living independently and being around these others and you know there's just such low expectations of people with disability in society and it, and it penetrates all aspects of their lives and and it's just an attitude shift I saw that I saw that you know people could live their full potential if other people's attitudes just changed and I then became aware of the issues in my film industry, in the, in the industry I was a part of, the film industry. There was no representation of people with disability in front of the camera, and there were certainly no opportunities for people to be included behind the scenes, absolutely mm. none. And I thought to myself, you know, is, is this connected? Is the, the lack of opportunities and the segregation and the inequality experienced by people with disability a direct result of the fact we are simply not sharing their stories and representing them in screen and on the television and the cinema. Um, and I started to see how the film industry could be used for a, a force of good. Mm. I started to see how it was important that we include diverse, marginalised people in storytelling in the film industry. And it all just started to marry up about how um, filmmaking could be used for social good. And I decided um, while I was making the documentary, when people were interested in the camera, I would you know, show them how to line up a shot and just kind of give a little bit of time to do some coaching. And I really enjoyed that. And then one of the participants in that documentary, his goal in life was to be an actor. And he was kind of working along other participants whose goals were to move out independently and get a job. and. You know, some, somebody wanted to work in an office. And they, these things were happening thanks to the program. But his dream of being an actor was unique. And being a filmmaker myself, I knew that that was going to be extremely hard. And don't get me wrong, he could definitely act. I mean, he could recite the entire balcony scene of Shakespeare's hmm. Romeo, from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you know, but soft, what lights through on the window break. He knew the whole thing. Um, and I was just, I just felt so cross um, because he had such incredible talent and ability, but I just knew the state of the film industry, people's attitudes, he's just not going to get a foot in the door. So I decided, you know, this was around about 12 months after being involved in the program, being very, very heavily involved in the community. Um, I thought I'll make a short film. Jared, the guy I've been talking about, he can star in the lead role and we'll make it inclusively. So we'll get some people with disability who might not usually be able to access, you know, filmmaking opportunities and film studies education, get them helping out to make the film too. So I ended up holding a workshop in a friend's living room. (laughs) Six people with disability, they all came on set, worked with professional mentors. Jared starred in the lead role and that film was my graduating film at university. It was called Be My Brother. And it ended up winning Trot Fest. I was going to say, that is a hugely award-winning film. 
yeah, it, yeah, it won Best Film at Tropfiz Fest, and um, Jared took out Best Actor. So we won in front of a crowd of 250,000 in the domain. Uh, we were on newspapers, and it just... But then, you know, with that success, winning Australia's largest short film festival, it was an inclusive film. We we smashed stigmas doing that, huh. him and I. Absolutely. Know. The fact is that being inclusive didn't slow us down, it didn't compromise on quality, and it actually wasn't hard to do. I wanted to ask you that, because I think that's often the, the mental reason that stops people even get, getting out of the starting blocks, is the presumption that doing it differently will be hard. Mm. And, and you didn't find that? No, it never has been. In 10 years, well, 12 really, 12 years of inclusive filmmaking, pairing up people with disability who have not had any experience making films with professional mentors, making films this way. Um, I've never had a complaint. I've never had a meltdown. It's never, there's, there's, just, there's, there's just never been a problem. There's just never been a problem. There are so many things I want to ask you about. One is, I can imagine firsthand, you've seen extraordinary transformation, both in the lives of people like Jared, who actually have been able to live out their dream, play roles on screen, that must be extraordinary to watch. But it must also be extraordinary to witness changing attitudes in the minds of your audience. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, have you been profoundly affected by watching both of those changes play out over the course of the last 12 years? Yeah, it's been quite extraordinary and it's why I can't go back to just prior to this revelation when I was making films at university I thought I could be in a sketch comedy show and um, <laughs> made a lot of terrible short films starring myself <laughs> um, but um, you know I can't I can't not make films that no. don't have purpose now I you can know, bet. A, a larger purpose you know a purpose to show people a new way of life or, or say something yeah. meaningful so I have seen extraordinary transformation in people's lives. Obviously, you know, the starting blocks for bus stop films, my not-for-profit organisation, was off the back of winning um, Tropfest. And so we've seen people participate in our Accessible Film Studies program, you know, their, their families transform and see kind of what they're capable of. Mm. Um, and having higher expectations for themselves. But then the audience reaction, I've had emails from people saying how they're not going to, you know, when they see someone on the street that might have disability, they're not going to ignore them or, you know, they'll, they'll want to, you know, be able to feel comfortable just to have conversation. Mm. And even in the workplace, you know, people wanting to advocate for people to get jobs. Um, in HR, uh, people just understanding that they can be inclusive and that, you know, transforming um, transforming someone's life just looks like giving them opportunities mm. and, and being more confident to give opportunities. Like I've heard stories with people, you know, getting jobs and there's one really beautiful story uh, that I heard from a mentor actually, when I first met him, he was excited to me because he knew about Be My Brother and said, I've got a story for you about your film. And his son befriended a person with disability and it ended, that friendship ended up having a really big impact. And when, you know, talking about that with his son, um, found out that he felt confident to form that friendship thanks to Be My Brother. Wow, that's great. You know, so these kinds of stories... You're hearing all the time. Very, very profound. 
And I mentioned, I mean, two elements of the Trot Fest winner are interesting to me. One is it catalyzed the start of Bus Stop, and it's one thing to make a film. I imagine it's another thing to start a non-profit organisation that then does that in perpetuity, right? And you've just finished, you know, 12 years, you've just uh, handed over to your successor, your baby. Um, so that I'm interested to, to unpack, did you know what you were getting yourself into almost with that? And the other thing is, how much pressure does winning Trot Fest with your first film create? Like... It's a pretty big double, my friend. I know. Look, it's a good question. There was a lot of pressure. And the truth was, I was 21. And 21? Yeah. You baby. That's unreal. I know. And um, it was the only good film I had made. You know, all those <laughs> sketch comedy. Haven't seen The Light of Day still? There's still. There was a zombie comedy um, that cool. I made. Love it. <laughs> that hasn't been released. <laughs> I look forward to seeing that in 2020. Oh, Great. Oh, my goodness. Maybe <laughs> at my 40th, my husband will like cut a terribly embarrassing reel of all these. He is hoping. I'll talk to Henry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it did create a lot of pressure and it caused a lot of disillusionment as well because here I was um, at 21 winning Australia's largest short film festival with all these prizes and, um, you know, the industry still not being very embracing of disability. So one of the very first conversations I had off the back of Tropfest was with a very large directing agent mm-hmm. and uh, one of the best in the business and I managed to get a meeting with her so I was very, very excited. And I bet. She was, she was very keen to know what I was working on next and I had just gotten a little bit of funding to make another short film which um, was going to be about a woman with Down syndrome and I wanted to explore the tragedy model that people view disability through and challenge that because I'd read in the dictionary or something around the definition of disability or tragedy and they were interlinked and I remember thinking, why is disability linked with tragedy? Because all my friends' disability, they're not tragic figures. Mm. I would not see them as tragic and that is a model through which society views disability as something that's tragic, which is very disempowering to people. Um, I find that actually quite extraordinary that, that at a kind of linguistic level those two are linked yeah well definitely 10 years ago when wow. i was doing research into the the, the, the different modes models disability, yeah. including social model charity model you know tragic models there and there is there was um there was yeah in the dictionary uh a link between the two i remember reading so i was very inspired to challenge that yeah absolutely and, and passionate about that and i explained this to the um to the agent and the colour drained from her face and she just said to me, why are you going to make another film about Down Syndrome? You are just going to be known as a girl who only makes films about Down Syndrome and no one will ever hire you, you are not going to have a career. And I was very disillusioned after that conversation. Did that make your blood boil? Did that make you feel like a truck had run over you? How did you feel in that moment? I felt very disappointed um, because I felt very passionately about sharing these stories um, and I just I felt very alone and I guess I had I, I had a fork in the road encounter where I thought well do I take her advice and I kind of put all this to bed now I've done my my down syndrome film as she called it do I finish with that subject matter now and I take her advice and I just go and, and um, kind of work up the ranks of the director I'll go find an assistant director job in a company, production company somewhere and just work my way up or 
you know, I, I had this real pull and desire to share these stories that were just not being told, mm -hmm. give actors with disability um, their time in front of the camera. Um, you know, and I just, I had this vision of a not-for-profit organisation. I just, I had a vision of a company that was um, teaching people about film studies, helping them make films with professionals in the film industry, and then develop, developing them to a point where we could employ them on professional film projects. Mm. And I had, I had this vision of it. I mean, I had no experience in business, and going back to my childhood, never even considered doing business. I mean, no way was I smart enough or clever enough to do that. But, you know, I just I just had this strong push, so this strong sense from within myself. So I decided to ignore this um, this agent and I made my the film, Francis and Me was was what it was called, um, and made it inclusively and just went from the next project to the next project, slowly but surely, um, building um, a foundation of case studies that mm. was then I could then use to get the help I needed to incorporate the not-for-profit and start that process. And the vision for it was um, to deliver film studies, tertiary level, to people with intellectual disability and others that might miss out on film studies education because of their um, their background or um, how society views them and uh, to give them access to professional filmmaking opportunities and eventually help to get employment. Um, at the same time, symbiotically, starting Bus Stop, I was also starting a creative agency with my then-boyfriend, now-husband, um, Henry, and that, that was Taste Creative. And over time, kind of organically growing the two, um, Taste being an, a, a profitable company that was giving resources to bus stop, um, we were able to take students that I was training up uh, through the film studies program at bus stop to be employed and work on professional taste creative projects. And I remember the first project we were able to do that on, it was a television commercial for the Special Olympics and we hired awesome. two of our bus stop students as production runners, properly paid, um, you know, they knew what to do and I had a moment going, We've just done something significant. This has never happened before. This has never happened before. People with intellectual disability have never been hired as production runner on a television commercial. That's so cool. Mm. I'm glad you can, even in those moments, take a little bit of stock and just step back and go, wow, like, what we're doing here, this is, this is game-changing. It might have only been two people, but it was a, it was a first. Yeah. And, and it proved that, we could, that this is possible, that the film industry could be inclusive and could hire people with, with intellectual disability, with disability, anybody different to the status quo could come yeah. and be included. <laughs> yeah. You've talked about um, feeling lonely, the, the challenge of not starting or not having pre-existing fertile ground in the industry you're working in, right? Like the industry not, not getting it, not being inclusive in its practices. Um, how did you go about, from your own standpoint, finding allies, finding advocates getting the support that you needed to, to not only kind of grow the, the mission and the voices, but actually to be able to support you in delivering on the dream? Mm. Well, I was working with, at the time, and still work with her actually, um, Eleanor Winkler, who produced Be My Brother. She's a producer and she was working in community theatre at the time out in Western Sydney. And so I kind of found a bunch of allies out there mm -hmm. uh, with the Powerhouse Youth Theatre 
Henry, who was my then boyfriend, was also quite supportive. So it started as a grassroots kind of alliance of just on-the-ground artists, emerging artists, taking advantage of, you know, being a part of um, the Powerhouse Youth Theatre in Fairfield, where they were all about nurturing emerging talent. Uh, so it started very grassroots. And then to transition from just having alliances in that grassroots art community to actually getting some, you know, hefty corporate alliances mm. that could help to make it all happen. Well, Eleanor really um, pointed me in the direction of the Foundation of Young Australians, and they were doing their pilot program. I believe it was the pilot program of the Young Social Pioneers project, which was in 2010, and she said, I think you should do this. And so I did um, a year-long kind of mentorship program with the Foundation of Young Australians in their Young Social Pioneers program. And that's where I really started to learn the basics of running a not-for-profit organisation. And I thought, right, this is what this is what it's going to take. And out of that, I was able to be introduced to it was then Freefields, the law firm, mm-hmm. who then incorporated us. Wow. Months that we eventually got incorporated. So I'd been doing the not-for-profit work, doing kind of making these short films inclusively, doing little workshops here and there, just voluntarily. Um, and then finally kind of was able to incorporate as an organisation and I started doing the workshops um, weekly. Uh, my program got incubated by a community organisation called the Sydney Community College. I pitched my program to them and they said, yeah, come do it. Awesome. And it was, it's been a very organic, a very organic journey kind of step by step, sometimes very much in the dark and at points thinking, is this ever going to be sustainable and can this survive without me? Mm. Um, so now it's, you know, 10 years later, since 2009, you know, it's running five programs a week for people with disability learning film studies. We've got multiple programs happening from students making a VR program, got bunch of students worked on a Vivid project that was screened during Vivid early this year and got one in Mongolia. I'm going to Mongolia, back back to Mongolia in um, September to help them with their inclusive film project. Uh, so how the whole program got translated into Mongolian. She's so extraordinary. The whole curriculum. You know, in Mongolia. Go uh-huh. figure. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you like knowing what you know now, if you could go back to ten years ago and give you know Jen just starting out at bus stop and at Taste and and developing the curriculum a piece of advice, what would you tell her? Oh, probably something she already knew. Just keep going. Yeah. That, you know, it was like, yeah, it's been tough. <laughs> well, it has. I mean, I, I've, I've known a bit of the journey, right? And and there's been some white-knuckle moments. There have been some, some big challenges. I mean, doing anything differently the way it's been done before is always hard. Mm. You've had a full plate running a commercial business alongside a non-profit, you know, doing all the other things that you do. What's been the most challenging part? Uncertainty. Yeah. I think is the most, un- is the most challenging thing when you literally are faced with I don't know if this is going to work. Which seems like the operating norm for a lot of creatives too, is this challenge of the financial model, the industry and grant to grant and, you know, off, and I think that's why it's great you guys have approached it differently from the get-go, but that that's, must be difficult on an ongoing basis. The added pressure comes from lives are involved as well. So with Bus Stop, you know, we have people that have been coming to our program 
for seven years now. And we have new people come in and stuff. Some people, you know, when we have different subjects all the time, they don't learn the same thing. They sure. make new films every year. Um, it's almost like for some some of the students, like a, a gym, mental gym coming in, constantly working on their communication, you know, creativity, all these things. And the, the transformational, you know, results from this program are so incredible. I, I've seen them firsthand. And um, I really did not want that to live and die with me. Mm. The pressure of feeling like this is too good for too few, this is so special. Because the truth is, people with intellectual disability, they do not get to go to university. Um, you know, they, they miss out on some key opportunities that many other people just, you know, just block straight into, you know, particularly when leaving high school. Um, often not being able to find their talents and their own aspirations or having such low expectations of themselves, they don't have aspirations. And so people were flourishing in this, in this program because it's not a day program that is just designed to fill up time. We have academic aims and outcomes. We have outcomes associated with um, work readiness that, and, and skills that are transferable to other industries as well. Uh, you know, increased communication, reading, writing, as well as you know, being able to make a film and you know, increase their skills as filmmakers. Mm. And so we're seeing lives just get completely transformed and the pressure of just not wanting that to finish because I run out of steam mm. someday. Um, and I could feel myself starting to run out of steam because, I mean, with bus stops, look, my, the board was always kind of not happy with this, but I didn't want to take a wage. I refused to ever take a wage. <laughs> And so, of course you did. I um I didn't. Um, it was look. There were times that it was tough, but I had enough passion that I did. Like I I ran on passion, and I was making a living from taste. And I wanted any finance that could go back into me for running the organisation. I wanted it to go back into the organisation mm. for the purposes of you know sending the students to film festivals if one of their films got in. And that that happens a lot. Uh, putting back into it some other film projects for more classroom resources and for ultimately saving up for sustainability, you know, to have a good nest egg. Um, and so, you know, like, I knew probably the 10-year mark was going to be the year that, like, I just couldn't keep doing that because that's, you know, passion can only get you to a certain point. You will eventually run out mm -hmm. of that today, but that's for everything. Um, and so, you know, around three years ago, I knew 2019 would be my, would be 10 years. And I wrote it in the strategic plan. I thought at some point I'm going to have to draw a line in the sand, otherwise I won't. I could just keep going probably, but get crusty and stale while I do it. And that's not good for the organisation. No, that's not. Um, and so, you know, I had to, I had to make that choice that no matter what happens, even when I doubt myself, most likely after I've made the decision, I'm going to leave off all the go, this is the right decision. I have to go, no, this is, this is the right decision, not mm. only for me, but for the organisation to get some new, new juice in the driver's seat. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, interested, I mean, you talk about the, the, the drain and the strain of that 10 years and this conversation we have with, with a lot of um, not just entrepreneurs but change makers and when you fit both of those categories um, is just the, the toll it can take personally and as well one of the things I've admired from afar about you is knowing full well how full your plate was um, 
that you've continually found a way to keep being creative too, which requires a certain like nourishment really, doesn't it? Or space to be able to think not just in the demands of what you're doing, but have capacity to be on ideas and, and brainstorming. What have you done as like a habit or what have you been um, consistent with over that 10 year journey that's enabled you to not just sustain, but thrive? Oh, that's a good question. Look, I think that one of the most important things that, um, and I actually had to get in the last two years, I had to um, readjust and really focus on doing it because um, I was I was um, losing, I was dropping this particular ball. But actually, um, you know, rest. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you hear stories about execs that you know they've got four hours sleep. Mm-hmm. They're gonna have a heart attack. I feel like we're just seeing this conversation around sleep really start to pick up too. We're, we're talking about it a bit more now. It's like, you can't actually just keep burning the candle at both ends, right? It's not possible. No. You, you sacrifice in some area, you, whether it's family, whether it is your own personal health, mm. um, mental or physical, it doesn't work. And so I was always very adamant that at 5.30 I finished. Always, and I didn't work in the evening. Um, I would get everything I needed to get done during the day. If I didn't get it done, I would not take it home, and I would do it the next day. Things can wait. But I actually feel like in the last three years, that with just the access to technology, being able to get emails, mm-hmm. like getting emails before, like reading them before you go to bed, and you know, just having it right with you, I think. There's some there's been some kind of phenomenon that everybody's just kind of emailing and working at every hour of the day. It's unhealthy. Evenings, and everybody feels like they need to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas probably around you know 2009 to about 2015, I'd say, wasn't much pressure like that. I don't remember it being the way it is now back then mm-hmm. but I definitely think in the last three years that this sense of having to kind of keep up you know I last two years I, I really had to work hard on not working in the evening mm. I do think that that um, caused a bit a bit of burnout yep just going 24 hours yeah because you, you can like the, the totally you've got to be super disciplined can. absolutely it's easier said than done it's so easy to I mean, I don't understand how people have um, push notifications on. So they continually let them their attention be disrupted by email alerts and notifications. But even even with the ability to flip down and reload your inbox, it's so easy when it's in the palm of your hand to just, just check that you get caught in something and then all of a sudden, you know, you found yourself working for 45 minutes or distracted by some social media feed or whatever it might be and totally. you disappear into it. Absolutely. There's a really good book called Rest how you get more done when you work less. Mm. And, um, you know, I read that, an excerpt of that in a magazine about a year and a half ago at a point where I was absolutely crumbling and just so burnt out. Um, And it was just before a a, a really big meeting. And I read that excerpt in the magazine and I just felt like a wave lifted off me going, I can live a balanced life. Yeah, I can do this. I actually asked the receptionist if I could take the magazine with me and I, I took it home, um, back to the hotel and kept it safe because it was amazing. I actually was just flicking through the magazine. I 
opened up at that How page, fortuitous, read hey? that, bought the book. Of course. Um, and they use examples in Silicon Valley, you know, people will, you know, do their startup, work really hard, and then they now have a year or two off, mm -hmm. you know. To recover. That happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, having evenings off um, is really important. And I've gone back to that now, now that I have um, seen the full gamut of what life is like working 24-7 and not. <laughs> yeah. And the, the collateral that that causes. <laughs> um, it is so important not to get caught up in, in, the, in the rat race. Yeah. No, great advice. But two final questions for you. Um, what's next? Where do you set the goals next now that you've handed the baby over? You've got this, uh, I imagine, somewhat uh, a liberation of the ability to have oxygen for, for new thinking, new ideas. What can we look forward to? So the CEO, the new CEO of Bustop and I have a really great relationship. It's been an incredible transition experience, which awesome. is really strange. Yeah. <laughs> because usually... It's not what you hear. Yeah. Happens. Um, and she really, like I'm still on the board, Great. very happy about it. She is as well. And so I'm, I'm just being able to manage a couple of projects for bus stops that I'm really passionate about, like our project in Mongolia. Cool. Another one that's coming up. Um, happy to, you know, help out with tutors and, and assist with that kind of stuff. But I'm focusing on my um, directing career now. Great. So I'm developing a slate of work in a, one of my feature films has been optioned by Robin Kershaw. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Kathy Kim. Yeah. Incredible, incredible show as well as Brandy Day and looking for Ella Brandy. So I was going to say, looking for Ella Brandy was the one that immediately came to mind when you said that name. Yeah. Yeah. So um, she's optioned that. So we're working on that together and there's a few other projects in Great. the pipeline. So um, I'm going to be focusing on my directing career, but it's not separate to my passion for inclusion. So, no. you know, when whenever I make work, it's always I'm always finding a way, how can this bring opportunities to people that might not usually get the chance to be involved in making projects like this. Mm -hmm. And certainly, hopefully, as my career trajectory as a film director goes on the rise... Uh, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> fingers crossed. You know, bus stop comes with me. You know, bus stop... Bus it's stop always going to be part of you, right? Yeah. Um, that doesn't know. end now because you happen to have, you know... Left as CEO. Yeah, you know, the students working out how that can help, you know, people studying with us, how we can employ people. It's just at a bigger scale now, yeah. you know, going from short form to long form. Yeah, and basically just being a free agent. So, like, I've, I've worked on some pretty interesting kind of random gigs, you know, consulting here and there on different things. And, yeah, I'm just enjoying being a little bit more flexible. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and the final question I want to ask, um, we love it, CopyBod's trying to move people from being inspired and, and fired up, which is great, into a state of taking action and doing something. Um, and I'd love if you could leave our listeners, having heard everything you've shared, particularly around, I think, the diversity inclusion message that, that your heart beats so strongly for, what's the call to action you'd like to encourage our audience to take up after listening to this podcast? Well, just do it. <laughs> like, honestly... Um, because I also speak a lot on inclusion and diversity, obviously, with, you know, my history of growing buffed up and doing this work in the film industry. And I go to corporate events and speak about inclusion. And some of the questions in the Q&A, you know, mostly the questions in the Q&A come back on how. And 
Well, how does a 21-year-old make an inclusive film with six people with disability? Because he chose to. Exactly. I mean, how does someone, you know, get a job in an, in an environment where nobody's been hired with disability before? You just do it. And um, I, I, you know, inclusion isn't hard. It's an, it's an attitude mm-hmm. and it's an action. You know, you believe in someone's ability and you give them the opportunity to rise to the occasion and you back them and you make reasonable adjustments if necessary. It's really not, um, it's not hard. And so I would just say to people that if they're in a workforce where it's, you know, there's significantly, um, you know, it's obvious there's no diversity, there's nobody with disability or people don't feel comfortable to disclose they have disability, change that culture. Go you know, advocate to employ someone with disability, with that lived experience or someone, you know, other than the status quo and, you know, find ways to use what you have in your hands to make a difference and sometimes that's just, you know, carving out an opportunity for someone that might not usually have the same chances as you. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.